to Taking the Party Out of Politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it should be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more clearly how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. Now, this is a little journey we're taking together about the systems and functioning of politics. Systems which we should all understand because those systems affect all of our lives all of the time. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better. In season one, we took a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. This is season two, in which we're looking at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected and then trying to do a good job. Looking ahead in season three, we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. Importantly, when we get to season three, we'll be sharing our ideas but also sharing some of the best of your ideas about how to make things work a bit better. Now today, we're going to have a look at how Parliament is supposed to work and how it actually works. Now, so far, the whole process isn't working properly for MPs. It's difficult to get elected. And then once you are elected, it's difficult to achieve much. You're overworked and you're expected to just go with the flow. To top it all off, all of the work isn't actually dealing with the really important stuff, the wicked issues, and we'll have a lot more to say about those later. As well as considering things from the perspective of our elected representatives, it's also important to have an idea of how the rest of our government systems work, or rather how the systems are supposed to work, and some of the problems which mean that the systems aren't working as well as they should. First, let's have a look at how the overall system is supposed to work within Parliament. Let's call them parliamentary systems. Now, if a new bill starts in the House of Commons, it goes from the House of Commons through about five different stages, then goes to the House of Lords through another five different stages, then comes back where the amendments are considered before going on to royal assent. Now, that all makes it look quite complicated, but let's just concentrate on the list of stages. There's a first reading, a second reading, a committee stage, a report stage, and a third reading. So a new law, often referred to as a bill, passes through those stages, normally starting in the House of Commons. It goes through the same stages in the House of Lords afterwards, or possibly the other way round, Lords first and then the Commons. There's a stage where the House of Commons considers any amendments which the House of Lords may have recommended. And then when everyone agrees, it becomes law, which, because of the strange system we have in the UK, with the Queen at the head of government, is formally signed off by the Queen herself, and so that final stage is called Royal Assent. Not too complicated, really. A few stages in the House of Commons, then the same in the House of Lords, putting all the good ideas together, and then getting it signed off by the Queen. Simple, right? Well, perhaps not when you look under the bonnet to work out what's actually going on. Let's have a look at what those stages actually are. So, first reading. This is actually a bit of a formality. It's really just an announcement by the minister who is leading the work in preparing the new law. For example, if it's to do with education, then it might be the Secretary of State for Education. Apart from announcing that the new law is coming up, 
The most important bit is that the minister also announces the date for the second reading. So, the second reading. The second reading is the first opportunity for MPs to debate the law in the House of Commons. The idea is that this stage should be dealing with the big ideas, the principles of the new law, not the details. It's an opportunity for MPs to raise any general concerns, and it's an opportunity for MPs who might be particularly interested in this sort of area of government to try to get on the committee. Because committee, the next stage, well, this is where a smaller group of MPs gets together to discuss the details of the new law. The committee meets several times over a couple of weeks. Committee members can table amendments, which means suggest changes which they think might make the law function better in practice, or which might make the law focus on what the MP thinks might be more important than what the minister has in mind. The committee will vote on each amendment individually, amendment by amendment, not just all the amendments together. And it moves then onto what's called the report stage. This is when the new law, the bill, comes back to the main House of Commons for everyone to have a chance to discuss the details, to debate the bill. Any MP can table amendments and the whole House, all of the members of Parliament who are there on the day of the discussion, the whole House votes on amendments. We then get to the third reading. Now, if the new bill is approved, this is when it gets passed on to the House of Lords. The members of the House of Lords then go through the same processes before it comes back to the House of Commons. And, as we mentioned already, the House of Commons can agree to accept all the great ideas and suggestions from the House of Lords, and then the bill, the new law, is passed on to the Queen for her to sign off. So, lots of stages, a bit of pomp and circumstance, but it sort of makes sense. A new law is proposed, a small group looks at the details for a couple of weeks, everyone gets together to discuss it, the House of Lords adds in their ideas, and then it becomes law. Well, that's the theory. Huh? Well, it seems simple enough even for MPs to manage. What's the problem? Well, the problem is not that there aren't opportunities for the MPs to scrutinise laws. The problem is that the MPs cannot, or perhaps will not, take those opportunities. Hmm. Well, you'll have to explain that one. It's one of the most important jobs for MPs to scrutinise new laws to make sure that they're doing the right job and that they're doing that job well. Surely MPs can get that right, can't they? Well, OK, strap in. Here we go. The biggest problem is the number of vested interests and how those vested interests can influence the processes and the people involved in those processes. For example, think of the minister who's leading on the development of the new law. As we've said, that minister will probably only be in office for 18 months and so will be in a hurry to make sure that they make their mark. This new law is probably one, or perhaps the only one, of the few ways in which the minister will be able to make an impact. Once upon a time, when that minister first stood as an MP, they were probably filled with idealism, bursting with the thought that they were going to make the country better. Ten years on, and they're finally a minister, and they realise they probably don't have very long in post. The pressure is on. Scrutiny committees, what we call those committees that are examining those bills, they appear at that committee stage in the process of the bill through Parliament. Now, the idea of scrutiny committees is that a group of MPs, representing the balance of MPs of the different political parties in Parliament, well, that group of MPs gets together 
to look at the proposed new law in detail. The committee is supposed to look at what the bill is trying to achieve and is also supposed to look at the detail of how this is going to work in practice. This is where the scrutiny committee, representing our interests as the electorate, is supposed to check up on things. This is where our representatives are supposed to call the executive, the government, to account. Now, if you're a lowly backbencher on a committee, well, is the minister going to be interested in what you have to say? Or rather, is the minister going to have time to listen to your ideas properly, as well as to listen to everyone else's ideas? Well, probably not. The minister is in a hurry. On top of that, this is part of the government's package of legislation. The government asked the Queen to stand up and say that this law was going to be part of their programme of new laws. Remember in the Queen's speech at the opening of the current parliamentary session. And on top of that, the law was probably promised in the election manifesto. There's a lot of ego and a lot of street credibility wrapped up in the getting this bill into law. So if you're a member of the party which has won the last election, and if it's your party which is in power, well, is the government going to be happy that you're pointing out that this might not be a great new law? Is the minister going to thank you for pointing out that some of the ideas are a bit poorly thought through? Well, almost certainly not. There are two ways in which this comes back to bite the members of the committee. First, there's the government. If you ever have hopes of becoming more than a backbench MP, if you ever have hopes of becoming a junior minister or perhaps even one day a minister, then you need people at the top of your party to notice you. And to notice you being supportive, a team player. So you have to be positive about what the ministers and the government is trying to do, no matter what. And if you're from the opposition, you still need your party to notice you for doing the right thing. But the right thing in your case means trying to score points against the government. It doesn't actually mean doing what the scrutiny committee is actually there to do. It doesn't mean actually scrutinising the laws to make them better. It just means scoring points. Second, there are the party whips. Well, OK, they're not actually Indiana Jones whips, but they are the party enforcers. They keep the party together and they make sure that all the MPs line up to support the government. Because if the MPs aren't there to support the government in the committees or in the House of Commons, particularly when it comes to a vote, well, then the bills might not become laws and all the ego and all the street cred goes out the window. If you're an MP on a committee or even when the bill is being discussed in the House of Commons, your party pretty much tells you what to do. Uh, the same is true of the opposition party whips, except in the opposite direction. Rather than trying to ensure that all their MPs are pushing the new laws through without too much challenge, the opposition whips are trying to ensure that all their MPs are trying to embarrass the government or trying to catch the ministers in a mistake, all just to score some points in a sort of game of who's the most popular in the media. Whichever party you're from, all the media attention means that any defeat for the government makes it difficult for MPs to change a bill using the official channels once it's appeared in Parliament. As a backbencher, the first step up is to be on a committee. And who do you think chooses who's going to be on the committees? Well, the party whips, of course. Given what the party whips want their committee members to do, 
they're probably not choosing who will be on the committee on the basis of people who really know something about this area. Doctors on legislation concerning the National Health Service, for example. No, 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 that would be far too sensible. No, MPs are selected on the basis that they won't table or vote for amendments which will be troublesome for the government, even if the law is a bad one. Or if they're in opposition, on the basis that they will try and cause trouble for the government, even if the law is a good one. To vote against the government is usually to vote against your own career prospects. This means that bad policies are passed by the Commons because there's a culture in which joining the executive is more important than being a serious legislator. So that's not good. Not at all. The system is there for the MPs to make laws better. We call it scrutiny because they're supposed to be taking a really close look at the laws. But the way in which the system is used by the ministers and the government and by the party whips means that MPs can't actually do much useful, constructive scrutiny. We'll talk more about this in a later episode on the blunders of our governments, but MPs on public bill committees almost always see themselves as partisan advocates, not as dispassionate lawmakers. Now, to pick just one example of how the party whips try to control parliamentary committees in ways which are, to say the least, not helpful, consider the story of Conservative MP Julian Lewis from July 2020. Mr Lewis was elected as chair of the Intelligence Committee by the members of that committee, but was then kicked out of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, what they call had the whip withdrawn, because Mr Lewis had not followed the party's plan to get their person into that role. The thinking here is that all scrutiny committees should be independent of government interference. Otherwise, how can they objectively be scrutinising government? However, the Intelligence Committee has already agreed to be a committee which should be, and should be seen to be, independent of government interference. The Conservative Party action has been described as absurd and bearing the hallmark of a government so arrogant that it really believes it is above scrutiny. Now, there are some ways in which sensible ministers, or ministers who are aware they might need to get support in advance, might try to help make the system work better. Sometimes a minister can encourage a process of pre-legislative scrutiny. Remember the sensible dictator who asks for advice before making a decision. This gives time for a committee of MPs and peers to examine a bill in detail, working together. Because this happens before the bill goes into that formal process, before the first reading, and so before the government's street cred is on the line, this gives time for ideas to be discussed in a less public way. What happens is that the minister might issue a consultation document. This is called a green paper. When a new law is being discussed and called a bill, it's referred to as a white paper. And the green paper allows policy ideas to be discussed a bit more discreetly without the possible embarrassment of the government losing a vote. But this process is optional. And it also depends on who the minister invites to give feedback. Do these special interest groups, which are consulted, genuinely represent the interests of the people who would be affected by the bill? Maybe, but maybe not. There's a process for ensuring that we choose people who are supposed to represent the interests of the people who would be affected. We call it 
electing MPs. But that process is skewed by the way in which government and the party whips manage the ways in which MPs are allowed to behave. And so replacing it with an ad hoc green paper system in which the people who make the most noise about something are consulted, well, that just isn't ensuring that the interests of the people who would be affected are actually going to be represented. Not good, huh? Not good at all. Now, there are also other issues, perhaps not as serious as the way in which opportunity for proper scrutiny is being shackled, but still a problem. For example, another way in which the whips exercise power over the ways in which votes are cast in the House of Commons is simply by advising MPs how to vote. There is so much legislation going on across all the activities of government that each MP simply cannot expect to keep on top of it all, all on their own, even when they're not instructing MPs how to vote. The whips still give MPs advice on how to vote, advice which is gratefully received by overworked MPs. So the House of Commons is either actively whips instructing and ministers resisting, or passively whips suggesting and MPs accepting not doing a good job, and it's neither properly scrutinising new legislation nor constructively challenging the government. As a result, any challenge to the government, or to a minister, is assumed to be a political point scoring, and therefore resisted. The House of Lords is not so easily managed. The members of the House of Lords are appointed for life, so they have nothing to lose or gain by pointing out that a new law isn't properly thought through. Luckily, then, the House of Lords is very often prepared to make the amendments which the House of Commons was not brave enough to make. Except, of course, that the House of Lords is not perfect. After all, the whole point of the House of Commons is that electing our representatives is supposed to be creating a body of MPs who are going to counterbalance the House of Lords, not the other way round. Some members of the Lords are experts in certain areas, and they really want to do their best, but not everyone. And on top of that, Prime Ministers can try to make lots of new appointments and fill it with their supporters, even if the whips can't control it. So whilst the House of Lords might do a welcome job of picking up the slack left by the poorly functioning House of Commons, it's not good enough to just rely on the House of Commons to do the job. Well, you might ask, is this really all true? You might be tempted to think that this is a lot of fuss and that things can't really be as bad as all that. Certainly, we're encouraged to think that our government is quietly competent. Don't worry, nothing to see here. I remember thinking blandly when COVID-19 first appeared in Wuhan in late 2019 and early 2020, about the poor people there, and that we were lucky that our governments in Europe would never let it get to that stage. Hmm, well that didn't work out very well, did it? Just because we're encouraged not to think about whether our government is doing well or not, does not mean that it's doing well. In fact, the thinking presented here may be disappointing, but it's actually almost uncontroversial. Sadly, it's almost conventional to say that the British government dominates Parliament. Further, it's so obvious that things aren't working out properly that some changes have already been made. Changes which have challenged the government's ability to control Parliament. Not enough for it to operate properly. Yet. But there have been some developments in recent years. Let's look at these. So, first of all, development one. Decoupling the confidence vote from rebelling against your own government. It used to be the case that the government could control its backbench MPs by declaring key votes to be a matter of confidence. 
if the government was going to be defeated on an issue, it could force the dissolution of Parliament and lead to a general election. Backbench MPs, therefore, had to make a choice between voting for something which they didn't like, a particular government policy or voting against a particular government policy, or voting their own government out of office. Fixed-term parliaments have decoupled these two choices. The power which the Prime Minister used to have to call a general election at any time is now much more limited. At the same time, backbench MPs can vote a little more freely because the government cannot hold this ultimate sanction over their heads, at least not for every vote which the government really cares about. A case in point has been the Brexit debates in early 2019. The government was regularly defeated, but then survived the no-confidence vote the following day. OK, well, development two, controlling the agenda. Some procedural reforms made in 2010 reduced the government's power to decide what parliament debates by creating space in the parliamentary agenda when backbench MPs could decide what was debated. The timing of these debates is still controlled by the government, but not the content. Again, the indicative votes which were held in 2019 on alternative Brexit proposals were an examples of MPs voting to suspend normal procedure and instead allow backbench MPs to set the parliamentary agenda. OK, development three, weak committees. Strong scrutiny committees are a worry for the government, not least because they can be an opportunity for the opposition to really challenge the government. As such, weak committees have almost been encouraged. Since 2010, however, Reforms introduced under New Labour, including salaries for select committee chairs and allowing MPs to select their own committee chairs, have meant that committee members have been a little more willing to challenge the government than they were before. So not only are all these problems real, but some efforts are already being made to address the problems, as we can see from these developments. These efforts indicate some small changes in the right direction, but not enough. Let's move on. Let's talk about secondary legislation, because as if it wasn't bad enough so far, then we come to secondary legislation. Now, the idea of secondary legislation is that it's possible for a bit of additional law to be tagged onto an existing bill, even at the last minute. In some respects, that makes sense. If a new situation arises and the law needs to be tweaked to make allowances for that new situation, it makes sense to include a little bit of additional law to all the work which has already been done, rather than starting from scratch. Depending on the time available, it might be possible to discuss it for a bit, but maybe not for long. MPs might get to debate it in the House of Commons right in the latter stages as a bill goes through, but they might have to vote for all of it, or none of it, rather than each piece separately. Secondary legislation is supposed to focus on the details of a bill. If it's just a little tweak, perhaps it's not too bad if there's not much discussion, or if MPs have to vote on the whole package or nothing. But the biggest problem is that secondary legislation can involve things which ministers don't want to be so well scrutinised. As an example, in 2015, secondary legislation cutting £1,000 from the tax credit income of some of the poorest families was slipped in to the House of Commons as a statutory instrument, which is a form of secondary legislation, with only 90 minutes for debate. Most MPs had little idea what was being slipped in at the last minute, and so it passed. Secondary legislation is an example of what's called a statutory instrument. Over 3,000 statutory instruments are used each year, but Parliament only examines about 1,200 
in detail. Parliament is supposed to be the body of our representatives, which is there to check the quality of the work which the government is doing. This sort of manipulation of the system, secondary legislation, means that the executive is effectively able to bypass Parliament. To have a strong government which is able to get things done quickly might sound like a good idea at first. In practice, though, this tends to mean a. Rushing new legislation into place. b. Not taking sufficient time to ensure that all the right questions have been answered. and c. Not needing to build a consensus around the new ideas. And in practice, this tends to lead to bad legislation. And we will discuss this more later, again, when we look at the blunders of our governments. Now, why do we have such a system? Well, that's an excellent question. If the system is so vulnerable to being warped out of shape, to being over-dominated by slick, centralised, well-organised political parties, well then, why would we have such a system in the first place? There's no simple, single answer, not to a system which has developed over years, even centuries. Some of it is structural. Some of it is organisational habit. Some of it is custom and practice. Perhaps the simplest and most useful insight is that the systems have developed over years, starting when political parties were not so strong, not so organised, not so powerful, not so far-reaching. Our modern idea of political parties and of strong, entrenched political party loyalty is actually relatively recent in a history of Parliament which stretches back centuries. Even political leaders within living memory have switched party allegiance in a way which would be almost a death sentence to a political career today. Churchill, for example, you've probably heard of him. Well, Churchill was elected as Conservative MP for Oldham in 1900, before defecting to the Liberal Party in 1904. He had a successful political career within the Liberal government, rising to become First Lord of the Admiralty, which is the civil political head of the Royal Navy during the First World War. After the First World War, Churchill defected again, back to the Conservative Party, rising to become Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1924. But he lost his seat in 1929. In 1940, Churchill was chosen as Prime Minister of an all-party coalition government. Now, MPs do occasionally switch sides today, but they often then lose their seats as a result. It's unlikely that the sort of back-and-forth political success which Churchill had would be possible today. Why not? Well, again, for many reasons, but the simplest and most straightforward one is the power and control which political parties exercise and the loyalty which political parties are able to insist upon. This political party power and control means that the systems which are intended to enable responsible, independent checking of the quality and planning of our laws, MPs in committees asking the questions, are these laws doing what they're supposed to? And the checking of the nature and purpose of our laws, MPs in Parliament asking the question, are these laws even what we want? Well, that responsible independent checking is not guaranteed. And if it happens, it's only down to good people making it happen despite a system which makes it all too possible for well-organised, centrally powerful political parties to control and direct things too much. So, if you want a short answer to the question, why do we have such a system, 
then it's probably something like we've sort of bumbled our way here over decades and centuries. Faced with the centralised strength and power of organised, slick political party machinery, it's clear that the systems are not independent enough to ensure that we get the robust scrutiny that we need to have, the scrutiny of government and of new legislation. Now, is it always like this? Just before we wrap all this up, it's important to say that it doesn't always happen this way. But the problem is that it can, and that the system not only makes it possible, but seems to enable it, almost to encourage it. When it doesn't happen, it's thanks to the individuals involved, not thanks to the system. And it's great that there are people who make things work better than they otherwise might. But they're being expected to try to represent us and our needs and our preferences. If the system even just makes it possible for the needs of either political parties or of just a few individuals within those political parties to come first, then the system is not good enough. And if the system seems to enable it, perhaps almost to encourage it, particularly when faced with today's much stronger, much more centrally organised political parties, then the system really isn't good enough. Not fit for purpose. Not in the way in which it is supposed to work. Not to achieve what we need it to achieve. Now, where have we got to with this? So the systems for getting into Parliament, getting elected, and then trying to find out how to navigate your way around Parliament, as we saw in our last two episodes, well, they aren't very helpful. Now we find that the central part of what Parliament is there for, to design new laws and to agree to them, well, that isn't working very well either. Essentially, party politics is dominating politics. Whether at the committee stage, which is supposed to be picking up any problems with the draft new laws, or in Parliament itself, the need for our elected representatives to toe the party line means that laws are not getting looked at properly and are rushed through. In addition, secondary legislation and the processes and time limits which are placed on Parliament means that all sorts of sneaky extra bits can be slipped in, or at least, even if viewed in the very best possible light, mistakes aren't picked up, and badly framed laws tumble into place. The system which is supposed to give us good laws to improve the way the country works and to improve our lives it's just not up to the job. Unless, of course, you have some different ideas, some suggestions as to how things could be different, perhaps about how we could use our systems differently, or about how we could tweak them so they worked better in all of our interests. If you have any ideas, we would love to hear from you. In season three of Taking the Party Out of Politics, we will be exploring various ideas about how we could make things better and we would love to hear from you. Just email us with your ideas on info at talktogether.info. If your ideas are good, or if they help us to understand things more clearly, then we will include them in season three. We might even contact you to interview you about your suggestions. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. Next time, we're going to look at the problems of ministers and safe seats, because just when you thought you got your head round all of the challenges, there's another whole layer of problems. For now, thank you for listening. If you'd like to have a look at transcripts of the podcast, including links to all of our sources and references, please go to www.talktogether.info and follow the links to the podcast from there. And of course, 
If you'd like to contact us, not least if you'd like to share any ideas which you have about how we can make things better, or if there are any areas of how politics is supposed to work, but why it isn't working, then please email us at any time on info at talktogether.info. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you'll take the time to tell your friends, and perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it also just really makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Yeah.